Hi, everyone, and welcome to How the Light Gets In, where we seek to have conversations that crack through the dark. I'm Haven, and I'm really happy you're here. There we go. This is happening. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I I warned you this would be happening, so I feel like we're fine. We are fine. We're absolutely fine. Don't worry about anything. Just chat. Just just chat to me however you want to, and and ask me whatever you want to. Thank you so much for sending the questions. By the way, they're really great questions. I I really appreciate hearing that because I was just you know what I wanted to know. Yeah. <laughs> and for the listeners, <laughs> so my guest today is. Honestly, probably my, well, not probably, he's my favorite performer, you know, actor, best voice I've ever heard, and he's blushing right now, which <laughs> makes me very proud of myself. <laughs> um, uh, Nadim Naman. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for being here. And Thank you for thank you for asking me, um, and thank you for such a sweet introduction. That's very very kind of you. I'm very um, very grateful and aware of how much you've supported my various projects over the last few years. So I'm um, I'm very very uh, honoured to be a guest on your brilliant podcast. And uh, yeah, have a, have a chat with you. Yeah, well, yes, I'm very glad you could make it. <laughs> and um, yeah. First question that I always ask people is just, how are you doing? How is everything? I know you are super busy right now. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a very good question to start the podcast with. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty well, thank you. I um, uh, yeah, as you as you just said, like it's it's been a very busy time. I've been I've been abroad working in in Greece mostly um since the turn of the year so that that was in a wonderful experience professionally being in a country that's full of very nice hospitable people doing my favorite musical and yeah just a very wholesome experience um but obviously comes with a lot of challenges as well because I'm not at home and you know this is this is like the first week or two that I've just had a routine in my own place doing normal life again uh kind of since Christmas New Year so I'm just readjusting and getting back into the swing of things and sort of getting used to being dad again and spending time with my kids and doing all of that sort of stuff so yeah I'm 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 well I'm tired I'm happy but I'm yeah I'm readjusting yeah that's good to hear I didn't realize that since Christmas oh my god That's yeah makes make sense though because I mean I have been following everything you've been doing and you have been yeah super focused with all the things <laughs> yeah lots of flying um which is which is you know tiring but it's completely worth it um yeah. and I'm just I'm you know I always say when it comes to shows 
uh, and especially shows like Phantom, which are, you know, so iconic and, and well-loved all over the world. It's just a total privilege to be asked to be in those. And you've got to kind of just enjoy those moments while they last and make the most of them. Because, yeah, before long, you're just back home and you're you're doing your thing and w- wondering what's next. So, um, yeah, no complaints. Yeah, absolutely. So curious. When did you first have the wanting to be in what you're doing right now? What started you wanting to do musical theater? I always say to people that for me, it was like a really slow burning discovery. It wasn't like I didn't have like a overnight like epiphany moment where the light bulb went and I was like, oh, my God, I found my calling. I found my thing. Um, I, I grew up in a family which was very supportive of the arts, but the arts had only ever been like a hobby or something that we would touch on during school holidays. No one in my family has ever done theatre or music professionally before. And I I grew up with a, a, yeah, I guess we used to go to the theatre two or three times a year. Um, We'd go and see like a pantomime at Christmas and then maybe once or twice we'd go into town and see a, a musical like all of the all of the classic ones you know that kids love to see like Joseph um Starlight Express Cats and then as I got a bit older those became Phantom and Les Mis and I think that by the time I was 14 or 15 I knew that I liked seeing shows enough to start auditioning for them at school so when I was 14 I auditioned for Jesus Christ Superstar which was the school play and that was the first time I ever was in a musical. And I made some of the best friends on that on that show. And they're still some of my best friends now, 23, 24 years later. I knew that that was something I was not going to stop doing. But I but even but even then, you know, I still didn't as a teenager, didn't really know it was going to be a professional choice. I think it was only when I got to university and I realized that I was more passionate about all the plays and musicals and concerts that I was involved in than my degree. That was when I sort of made that decision that I had to really think about it seriously. And what happened was I went to the Edinburgh Festival with a show called The Fix by Dempsey and Rowe, which is a brilliant show, um, complete satire of American politics. And... Whilst in that show, I met a couple of guys who were in another show in Edinburgh. They were actually in a production of Parade. And they they and I got talking after our shows one night in a pub. And they sort of said, have you, have you ever thought about this course at the Royal Academy of Music? We've just done it. We've just graduated. And I had never heard of this course, but I immediately went and did some research and it's like a one-year post sorry, I can't speak, a one-year postgraduate course, nine months of intense training, at the end of which you hopefully leave with an agent and can go straight into the industry. So I loved the sound of that. And I auditioned the following year to, to sort of start that course as soon as I finished my degree. And that's what happened. So it was a kind of going to the theatre as a kid, auditioning for school plays auditioning for more things at university and then realizing that it was 
it was what I wanted to do. But I'm really, really grateful for that because I've, I've got a lot of friends who were much more heavily involved in theatre as children and young, uh, younger teenagers, and they tell me that they just always knew. But I, I quite like the fact that I came to it sort of slowly and and like organically, I guess, because I feel like the moment of realisation was stronger because it happened to me as an adult, if that makes sense. And, you know, I'd always, when I was at school doing those plays and I was in the choir as well, like I, you know, I started to learn, I learned some musical instruments as a kid as well, but I'd always kept music and acting as two separate things because unless you're in an environment where you're doing musicals regularly, like, you know, it's easy for them to just be two separate areas. And then it was at university that it was, you know, one musical after another and fell in love with it. So here we are. <laughs> that is, that's really fascinating. And I was going to mention like really interesting that I feel like you do always hear that people are like, I always knew mm. that this is what I wanted to do <laughs> to hear like, yeah, it, I liked it. And, but didn't really focus on it. If that's what, but then be like, oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> being yeah. so much more influential, I think, than being around it your whole life. Yeah, that whole thing of like, yeah, always knew what I wanted to do because I was, you know, around it my whole life and I grew up with it. And you know, as opposed to coming to that realization when you really, have the tools, I guess, mentally to be like, oh, that is, that's what I want to do. That. I, I, I think so. I think it is that. It's about having tools and and kind of just sometimes I think in life, whether it's to do with work or family or friends or relationships or hobbies or whatever it may be, sometimes like people commit to things very early and just sort of keep going um without without taking moments to really really like have a pause and think about what they want and how they feel and I mean I'm guilty of all of those things at various points so it's it's a very I think it's a very easy and common thing for people to do mm -hmm. so when you kind of get hit by something that you weren't expecting or something surprises you out of the blue it, I think those moments are the ones that really last in your mind and and impact where you want to go moving forwards yeah uh, excuse me it's 4 30 in the morning here so <laughs> whoa oh my god 4 30 a.m yeah um, i had I'm so sorry that i made you get up so early i have no idea it was that early it's okay yeah, wait, I, was, wait, wait, wait. I know yeah time zones are wild but I was just like, this is what works for him and this is going to work. <laughs> Bless you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I thought maybe, I thought maybe, I, I don't know why. I just thought maybe you were, you were East Coast and it was like eight in the morning or something. Which I mean, yeah. That's uh, very, very sweet of you to get up so early. It's, it's all right. <laughs> I was, I was really excited for this. So full disclosure, I wasn't really sleeping anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a bit about your 
schooling and your um like the first show that you saw that really made you consider like doing this for when you look back what what was the the process I guess that's that's a good Mm -hmm. word I'm like knowing this is what you want to do going to university and then or and going into that acting program and then where yeah I think the, the the thing that I remember the most about that period of time was I guess I guess this links back to what I said earlier about how I you know grew up in a family when no one had ever done this before so I, my main memory of that period is just that I wasn't very informed and I didn't have any kind of friends or relatives I could call up and talk to about it so it was all kind of a lot of unknowns and a very slow process of just discovering things. The first decision that I made was that I knew that I knew that I wanted to go to university before attempting to train for two reasons. One, because I was as a kid in a what I would call a traditional family. I was very aware of how kind of risky the arts can be as a profession. And I liked the idea of having a degree to fall back on just in case it didn't go well so that I had other options of of careers, you know, be it teaching or writing or journalism or whatever it might be. So there was that. But there was also this the life experience side of it. You know, I, I did, you know, I did a bit of research on drama schools. And I, I very quickly kind of sussed out that there were lots of postgraduate options available. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to go through the process of of spending three years in dance class and singing class and acting class before I was more aware of who I was as a person and had just done that whole life experience of going to university, uh, working and living with, with other students who are all studying different things and doing that whole we're away from home for the first time becoming adults so so i i i always knew that i wanted to go to university first and then by the end of university i absolutely knew that i you know having done three years there i didn't want to do another three years somewhere else i was you know starting to get enthusiastic about just trying to be a professional so the idea of a one-year course really suited me so i arrived i arrived at the royal academy of music as a 21 year old and I was working by the time I was 22. And that's my first job. I did I I graduated in in the July and I spent the August doing a production of the last five years at the Edinburgh Festival. So that's the first time I was ever paid to be in a musical, which was awesome. Especially in a in a show like that where there's only two of you and you're really getting to show who you are and introduce yourself to to the audiences. So that was brilliant. And then what also happened alongside that was I got my first West End job, which was The Sound of Music at the Palladium. And there's a story behind that as well, because, you know, look, I'm not that old, but I am, you know, nearing 40. So when I was a graduate, the world was very different. You know, there was no Instagram, there was no Twitter, there was YouTube was just just a thing. But it was a thing on, on which you you know you went to find out helpful things like how to cook things or how to <laughs> how to repair your 
I don't know, your broken washing machine or whatever. It wasn't this thing with channels and music and it, it, that, that all came later. Facebook was a thing, but you could only be friends with people on your campus. Um, so it was like an inter-college or inter-university platform. So the world was very different and we were very, you know, as drama students, we were very safe and isolated and, and, and we, we were able to train in, with kind of privacy and make mistakes and figure out who we were without being judged or known, you know, whereas now these poor students, I, I, you know, you've got 20 year olds being reviewed by blogs and websites and video clips of them going up. I and mean, it's a lot of pressure very, very early on. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this is one of the main reasons that there's been such a rise in anxiety and mental health conversations in theatre, because people don't have that kind of shielded safe time anymore they're just thrust into the public sphere very quickly mm-hmm. where everybody you know knows them and has access to them and is looking at pictures and videos of them and it's too it's too for me in my opinion everyone's different but in my opinion it's too much too soon and it, it's not healthy because training and education is supposed to be you're still developing you're not supposed to be the finished article so when i was training these were in the days when you still had to print off your headshot photograph and have your CV on the back and send letters and ask casting directors to consider you for an audition. You know, none of this stuff exists anymore. Now it's like, you know, it's social media, it's email, it's spotlight, this online casting platform, mm-hmm. which agents use to submit you for things etc etc so to cut my long story short and go back to what I was trying to say um I I wrote a letter to a casting director asking if he would consider me for a role in Hairspray which was just about to come to London from New York for the first time ever so this is in like 2005 2006 around then Um, and I didn't hear anything from him in response for ages and I was like okay well that's how it goes you know if they don't want to see you they don't want to see you they're busy people they don't they don't have to write back but then about a month later I did hear back and basically the upshot of it was he didn't think I was right for hairspray but he was casting the sound of music and he was looking for a Rolf in that so would I go in for that so I went and auditioned my first ever West End audition. I was terrified, but it went really well. And I ended up being cast as first cover Rolf and in the ensemble. And I did that for a year. And then when the cast change came around, um, I was thrilled that they asked me if I would take over the part. So I had this kind of what I call like the completion of my education by spending 18 months in a theatre. Because something they, they don't teach you at drama school about how a theatre works, what all the departments are, what they all do, how you should have relationships with them and interact with them. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you about what it's like to be in a show uh, eight times a week for a year, how mm-hmm. to after yourself mentally and physically and how to, you know, just learn learn how to do that thing. Because when you're training and when you're a kid, doing this for fun you're always rehearsing something and then you do like three or four shows and then it's over Mm -hmm. and everyone's sad and you get that post 
post-show blues feeling and everyone wishes it was still happening and you start again on something else. So it was as a student, it's always about the process of getting ready for opening night. Then you do it and then it's over. But then suddenly you're doing it professionally and it's your job and you're doing it six days a week for a year and you're missing so many family things and you're working, you know, on public holidays and New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and and you're working on the weekends when everyone else in your life is not. And it's it's a it's a it's it's that kind of a process that takes time to to learn how to exist in that world. Um, and you can't really know what it feels like until you've done it. Um, so what I'm trying to say is I thought that I was ready for that when I started that job, but the reality was those 18 months were the period of time where I learned what it is like to be a professional in the West End. Mm. And, um, so I, yeah, I consider that kind of like the, the final chapter of, of my education. And then, and then straight after that, one another very integral part was I learned what it was like to be unemployed. You know, I, I finished that show and had a, had a bunch of great auditions, but none of them went my way. And I and I spent a few months readjusting to not being in a show and figuring out that I would need to get other kinds of jobs and hobbies and things to keep keep me happy mentally. So it's so it sounds like a cliche, but you just you never stop learning and you never stop figuring out um, who you are and what you want going forward. And that remains the case now. You know, I've been doing this for sixteen years, but it's still there's no two years that have been the same ever. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a journey. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Or laughing to myself a little bit because I had heard that you were in Sound of Music following your career and I was just like I wonder what he played in that and Ralph makes a lot of sense and I think that's really funny. <laughs> I believe it or not I used to dance it's been a long time that was that was that was the only that's the only time I've ever really danced in the West End I mean I suppose masquerade counts a little bit but um not in the same way um yeah it was it was a perfect first job you know it was it's a lovely role you've got a great song you've got three or four good acting scenes so, so you're important to the story but you're not in it enough for you to feel pressure or to worry about your you know your stamina or your vocal health or any of those things so it was a really good first role um to sort of learn my craft a little bit more I guess yeah yeah for sure so one of the roles that you have done quite a few times now is uh role in phantom uh yeah. brilliantly I might add thank you so good um, uh so what i was just curious how did you get connected with that um hmm. particular um job in the first place so i think i was around was around 23 or 24 years old and I did it. I did a, I did an opera actually, um, and it was an opera in which 
they wanted it was a, it was an opera version of the King Arthur Camelot legend and I played Lancelot and the reason I was in an opera is because they wanted Lancelot to have a different voice type to sound like he was from somewhere else <laughs> excuse me so so they had I was I was working with all these amazing opera singers and I was the musical theatre guy but I met on that opera I met a young singer whose name was Sean Griffiths and her dad happened to be the legendary Philip Griffiths who was in Phantom of the Opera and had been for sort of 25 years and he came to see that he came to see the show to support her and I met him afterwards and he said you absolutely need to write to the casting team at Cameron McIntosh and ask to be seen for the show I think you'd be brilliant in it and I had seen Phantom at that point three or four times I absolutely loved it. it it's I think it's like the perfect West End musical it has something for everyone and it has there's a caliber to the singing in it that you don't get anywhere else and I I guess because it's set in an opera house you know it's it, it's not a show where you can put pop stars or people who've been on the telly who can sort of sing like it's it, and you know no disrespect to those people but there is a lot of that in the west end currently but you can't do that in phantom like in phantom you have to be able to sing and sing really well so i remember always being blown away by it when i saw it as a youngster and the first time i saw it <laughs> some guy called ramin karimlu um was uh, was raul <laughs> And um, and I remember I remember just feeling like really inspired by his performance, but also not just his performance, but also just the fact that he the fact that he also had a Middle Eastern name, the fact that he was called Ramin and I was called Nadim, and the fact that he, his surname is Karim Lou and my my brother's name is Karim, and 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 I just like felt like I related to him and he was playing a role that I knew deep down that I was a good fit for, like as a personality type, as a voice type. And so I really like made a mark on me. And, you know, four or five years later, as I was describing, I then wrote this letter and, and got an audition. But they made it very clear when I auditioned the first time that I was still too young or like quote boyish to like to be considered for the role. But they really, they really thought that I would be a good contender for Raoul in the future. So they said, why don't you come in and be an understudy and learn the show and learn the role? And we'll just see how it goes. So I, of course, said yes. Spent two years as the understudy. So I understudied Will Barrett and Killian Donnelly. Another one who's, you know, gone on to have like a stratospheric career. And just, yeah, learned the part, got familiar with the part, got it into my bones and into my voice. And that was 2010 to 2012. And I remember at the end of 2012, they they called me into audition for it, for the role when Killian was moving on to something else. And the same, the same feedback happened again. They said, you know, we still think you're too young, but... You're, you will play this role one day. Don't worry about it. Just go away, get some experience on other shows, meet some other people, learn learn some other things, and you know we'll see you in the future. At the time when you hear that and you want something so badly, you feel disheartened and you feel deflated and you wonder if they're kind of just saying that to be nice. 
but they were they were completely true to their word and what happened was i i left the show and i and i did um i did a production of marguerite i did a production of chess i then did titanic at Southwark playhouse which went to Can- canada um and i auditioned for a production of sweeney todd which was a fringe production to begin with in an actual pie shop in Tooting, which is this, you know, very ordinary and cute part of sort of outer London, very old school part of London. And we did a Sweeney Todd in front of an audience of 32, mostly by candlelight. And it was brilliant because it was scary and funny and up close. Um, And the show was a huge success. And um, on the last night of that show, Sondheim, unbelievably, came to watch this version in Tooting because he'd heard about it. And he then persuaded Cameron McIntosh to put that production in this empty restaurant he had next to Les Mis on Shaftesbury Avenue in London. So we got a, we got a West End transfer of this pie shop version of Sweeney, which was completely crazy. One of the best experiences of my life. And on the opening night of that, Cameron came to watch because, you know, he was a he was a producer on it at that point. It was his venue and he'd supported the show. And basically the day after he saw that, my agent called me and said they want to know if you'd be interested in, in going in as Raoul. So it's like it's one of those lovely stories where I left that show and it was three three years later. I wondered if the moment had passed and if it was ever going to happen. But then it happened kind of because the producer saw me in something else and was like, oh, yeah, he's ready now. Like, this would be good now. So, yeah, so that's how I got my chance to do it, to do the actual role rather than be the understudy. Um, And that was in, yeah, I mean, even that was eight years ago. I mean, gosh, the time flies so fast. But, yeah, that was that journey. (laughs) It's absolutely wild how just, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, everything's connected and everything, you know, it's like a, it's just a big chain. And exactly. one, whether something goes for you or against you, you can trace everything back. Everything that's good that's happened, you can trace back to these moments. And a lot of those moments are when you get a rejection or a no, which then means you're able to do the other things that mm-hmm. lead you to what you wanted to be. I mean, in that three-year gap, you know, there were times where I was really disappointed because I'd auditioned for things that I desperately wanted and I didn't get. But if I'd got them, I wouldn't have done those things I just spoke to you about, which, you know, in one case meant I got to meet Stephen Sondheim. In another case meant I got asked to play Raoul. And, and like, you know, if I had you know been locked in a one-year contract doing something else I wouldn't I wouldn't have had any of those opportunities so it's it's very easy to sort of look back on it in hindsight but it's really important that we remember that in in the industry every day like whenever something doesn't go our way we have to like remember how many times that has ultimately worked in our favor mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's easier said than done but it's <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask about 
you know, being connected with Raul so many mm. times. Like, is it, <laughs> I guess my question is, are you wanting to play that role a lot or do you just keep getting asked? <laughs> because um, you- Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think that initially, initially I want it was me that wanted to play that role a lot. But then, you know, as as I've got older, what's happened is I've been very fortunate that other directors have come to me and said, you know, we saw you play Raoul and we think you're one of the strongest we've seen. Would you like to do it one more time here or there or you know, and that when when someone says that to you, it's a complete honor to to be thought of in that way. And so it's a very easy thing to say yes to. Also, just the material is so strong, you know, Phantom of the Opera is <coughs> best musicals that's ever been written. So it's a pleasure to keep going back to it. But you know, I definitely, I definitely think I've played it more than I intended to. Like I as I said earlier I've only just come back from Greece doing it but we went back to Greece because Greece was cut short by Covid Mm. um you know I I thought I'd said goodbye to this role in 2020 but then we only got to do half of our run um so when the producers asked me to go back this time there was a large part of me that was like should I should I still be doing this or, or should I have left this behind? But it felt like the right thing to do to go back and finish what we started. Mm-hmm. And, and this time, actually be able to say goodbye to the character properly. Because, you know, in 2020, I was preparing to do that. You know, I was preparing to sort of say, this is my last ever show as Raoul. What, what, what a role it's been for me, but I need to move on to other things now. But I never got that chance because we were on our way to work one day and we just got an email saying shows cancelled COVID go, you're going back to England. So, so I, I hadn't, I had no preparation mentally or emotionally for the fact that this hugely influential part of my life was coming to an end. Mm. So it was a really nice thing to, to be asked to, to actually go back and do that. And it was only a short run, you know, it was six weeks. It was perfect. And I was working with a lot of old colleagues who I'd worked on, phantom with previously and i and i did i did say out loud this time like when they asked me i did say you know this will be the last time i do it because i you know as i said earlier like you know i'm pushing 40 now and i i aspire to play the older and dare i say more challenging male roles in musical theater and i'm looking forward to my the next decade of my life being about that challenge I don't want to just be someone that keeps playing Raoul until someone decides he's too old for it and I think that sometimes you you need to let go of something before you don't enjoy it anymore which is you know I've never I've never ever felt that way about Raoul but I think that if I committed to another year of it, for example, I might halfway through it think, oh, I shouldn't have done this because I've done it so many times before. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely does. Yeah. So switching gears from you acting 
<laughs> roles, uh, primarily. You've also um, co-written and created these musicals, two of them now, one about Rumi and one about Khalil Gibran. Yeah. And I'm just curious because acting in those roles that you created, what is the difference that you feel? Because you've also acted in a lot of roles that you were just given and yeah. not not given. That sounds like you didn't do any oh, work. No, you know what you know what you mean. <laughs> Don't worry. Um yeah, you you mean you mean what's what's the difference between being a part of something you've written or co-created versus when you're just cast in something by other people and given given a job right yes um I think that the main difference is that when you're do you know what I think the main the main difference is the fact that you obviously know the material inside out and you are aware of every single reason that you wrote that line of dialogue, that note of music, um, what everything means, like the the kind of the subtext behind everything is already in your brain. So um, it means that you feel really prepared and you feel really familiar with it straight away. But what I would also say is that that, that sometimes that's not a great thing because, you know, even, even though I'm a writer on the show, We've always had wonderful creative teams bring them to life, a wonderful directors and musical directors and choreographers. And, you know, they have to consider my performance. They have to consider all the other performers and how things work between us. And sometimes they will suggest something or ask a question. That means I have to completely rethink something. And that's, that's, more challenging when you're the writer because it's already like cemented in your brain so that in that regard it's probably more straightforward to work in other people's things because then you're just turning up to work every day and you're the same as all the other actors and you're you're just in the moment working with your director to piece this thing together and 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 bring it to life but when you're the writer you have to kind of jump in and out of two two positions um it was definitely easier on broken wings because in broken wings my character was essentially the narrator yeah. and and he is a he is a writer writing his book during the musical so it, it was it was easier on that one because i was kind of detached and i didn't interact with the other characters very much whereas on rumi rumi was all about relationships between people and interaction and conversation and duets and trios and quartets and big group numbers. So I, with Rumi, I found it, I made a decision very early on to just sort of say, I've written this and now I'm handing it over to you guys and I'm just going to be an actor. You you shape this show how you think it should be. You suggest if that if you think there are edits that should be made to the script or cuts that could be made that would make things better, or if you think, I could add some lines. You just tell me, just let me know what you need and I'll do it. And maybe it was easier on Rumi as well because it was just, it was the second time I was doing it. It wasn't the first time I was in a show that I'd been a writer on. But at some point, I'd really like to write something and not be in it. Um, I'd like to write something that 
there is no role for me in or that I can't be in just so that I get to have that experience of just being a writer who gets to watch his show come to life because I don't know what that feels like yet like I've never I've never been to see a production of Rumi for example I, I've only ever seen it from on stage and I'd love to know what it's like what that feels like to to sit out front um and hopefully you know over the coming years there will come a time when Broken Wings or Rumi will have a life where I'm busy doing something else and I can't be a part of it but then maybe I can go and just be in the audience and mm. and just enjoy enjoy the work I did years ago from a new, in a new perspective you know yeah excuse me absolutely that yeah I can definitely see how the experiences would be a lot different yeah also really interesting because you mentioned uh Ramin Kremlu mm-hmm. uh earlier and he is um he acted with you in Rumi I mean for me it feels like another full circle thing hearing the really? <laughs> like... and I and I you know that that was a really I was really proud of that moment when it when it came to pass and he said yes because I have always had him in the back of my mind since I started this industry as a kind of role model or like inspiration like someone 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 who you know I I told you earlier that I saw loads of shows as a kid and but it, but I wasn't into it enough to really clock who who the actors were I didn't I didn't stage door I didn't follow people's careers because I was I always always seeing these shows and thinking the show was the star like the characters were the stars and it, it, but but when when it was Ramin and he was playing Raul then he wasn't playing the phantom you know he was he was playing the supporting principal and but but I just there was something about that recognizing his name and feeling a, f- a familiarity or a connection because there was I, I I'd never seen a, a Middle Eastern name in a West End program before and so to chart his career and see see it progress um and every few years like we'd kind of touch paths for really random reasons like I remember when I was in the Sound of Music he was playing the Phantom at Her Majesty's and we were both invited to this thing for Andrew Lloyd Webber's birthday, where there was a concert of all the shows he was producing. So we met there and then I didn't see him for a few years. And then we did a workshop together. So I would work with him for two weeks and then a few years and then Phantom 25th. And then a few years later, blah, blah, blah. Like we just kind of kept crossing paths, but never doing an actual show together. But then when Rumi came up and, you know, Rumi is the Rumi is to Persia what Gibran is to Lebanon you know he is their national iconic writer um and so as soon as I knew that we were doing that thing and that there was this character um who was Rumi's mentor Rumi's mirror he was slightly older than him he would guide Rumi and shape him into who Rumi would become I just knew I had to ask Ramin to do it. And I actually started writing all of the songs for his voice on the 
kind of hoping that when I when they were ready to send to him and say, you know, please listen to this and and I'd like you to record it on the album, please let me know what you think, if you think there should be any changes, blah, blah, blah. But he just he just very quickly replied and said he absolutely loved it and he wanted to meet up. And so I went and met him and we booked a room, a rehearsal room in London and I sat at the piano and took him through all the songs. And he said yes there and then. And he talked about the importance of it being the first time he would get to combine his musical theatre with his Persian heritage. And that was like everything I'd ever wanted to hear because that was why I wrote Broken Wings in the first place, which was obviously my first show. It was to combine my love for musical theatre with my love for for my homeland of Lebanon, um, which were two things I'd never seen combined before, um, either by me or by anybody else. So I think when you get the right source material and it resonates with people, you you have the confidence to, to approach people that you really respect, like Ramin, and just to ask them. And you have a confidence to ask them, please, will you be in my musical? If I'd written a song that was uh, written a show that was about, I don't know, a group of students in Paris or a group of friends in New York, you know, of which there are many other shows, he might not have felt there was a reason to like listen to it and think about it and, and, you know, get involved. But with Rumi, because he felt, he felt a personal connection to it. It, it just shone through in, in every in every way. He was so committed. He was so supportive. He was such a good friend on it. And we did when we did the show last year again at the World Cup. You know, it was a great shame that he he couldn't be a part of it because he was in Funny Girl on Broadway. Mm-hmm. But he was so supportive and so kind. And you know, we found an incredible actor singer, Adam Beju, who who did the role of champs for us the second time and it was wonderful that was wonderful as well because it was like so exciting to hear another actor interpret it and sing it so beautifully and to know that the show worked without Ramin as well as with Ramin was a really cool thing because when you revere somebody that much and you write a role with somebody in mind but then you hear someone else sing it very differently but just as incredibly you you have even more faith in in the work you've made because you, you can imagine it having a future where you know many casts all around the world might do it and it doesn't matter who's in it really um so yeah it's been very special and <laughs> i'm about to work with him again i'm about to work with ramin on dr Zhivago, um which we're doing yeah. in concert with the palladium in two weeks so that will be really nice because uh, i've not seen him for a year so yeah, that would be cool. That is really cool that you had known of Ramin, I guess, mm-hmm. and then getting to work with him as someone that you looked up to, really. Yeah. Is, that is really cool. Well, something else I want to say about Ramin, just quickly, mm-hmm. is that he is the most he is the most generous company member. I think many people might expect someone as successful as him to kind of walk into a room with, I suppose, with a kind of, well, he is a leading man and he has huge gravitas and presence, but he doesn't treat people around him that way. He he comes into the room and he 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 wants to be spoken to the same as everybody else 
he wants to receive notes and criticism from his creative team so that he can improve his performance. He wants to study hard. He wants to prepare well. And it's so it's such a breath of fresh air to meet someone as successful as him and as talented as him who has retained that throughout his whole career. And I that's that I, I think that's the thing I admire most about him. And it's something that I will always endeavor to to take inspiration from because you do also meet other actors who, you know, are wonderful people, but don't have that same team energy, especially as they get older and and become more and more successful. They kind of, there's more of a sense of, okay, I'm here. I'm going to do my thing. You know what you're going to get because it's what I do and it's why I'm successful. But then you know, I'll leave you to it and you can work with other people. Mm-hmm. But he he doesn't he doesn't operate like that. And it's it's very refreshing. So yeah, big respect. I have big respect for him. That is really cool that um yeah, because you it doesn't often happen that way, I don't think. Yeah. Knowing of him as an actor myself, he 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 is really good and he's super successful. And then to know that he's it is really nice. You're like, oh, he's a nice person too. Yeah. Exactly. On a completely different note, not, not having to do with anything musical theater-ish, I do know that you also have a family yourself. Really just wondering how have you found time to, you know, be as busy as you are. You know, yeah. And also make time to be able to shut that out and be like okay I'm doing this now (laughs) yeah um it's it's I think that's just something that is an ever-changing and never-ending journey when I you know it's really funny like I I think back to when when I first became a father and you know, one of the one of these things that's really a really stereotypical comment in life, or a question in life for um, for people is, you know, this concept of when is the right time to to become a parent, or when is the right time to have kids? And frankly, I don't think such a thing exists. I think that I think that knowing that you want to be a parent is something that can can come to you at any point in your life Mm. um but the reality is that a lot of people i think put off having children until they feel the right time in inverted commas but then there is a risk that they're like rushing to do it or looking to create the right circumstances and putting pressure on themselves to do it when the reality is that it's always going to change your life. It's always going to take over your life completely. And as it should do, because, you know, at the end of the day, whatever your, whatever one's faith is, whatever one's background is, wherever anyone comes from, we have evolved over hundreds and thousands of years to become parents, to have children, to keep the human race going. So there's something... What I'm trying to say is that there's this thing inside you, literally, it's like a switch going. And the second you become a a parent, 
you feel things that you've never felt before. You feel levels of love that you've never felt before. You know, everything else in life you have to fall in love with, right? Be it be it a person, be it a thing, be it music, be it a place. You fall in love over time with things in life. But with, with your children, it's like instant. And it's it's like, I think it's hormonal. I think it's chemical. I think it's it's like all the all the reasons we've evolved into the human race that we are today are rooted in the fact that we have done this thing for however long. So what happens is, is that that changes completely how you see your work and how you see everything, really. My personal way of coping with it is to try as hard as possible to not combine the two. Um, I find it much easier to be in work mode and then to be in I'm a dad and I'm not thinking about work mode because I've tried in previous years to, yeah, I can work on this song and the kids can be playing over there and... And what that means is that your song isn't very good and your kids are not happy. And then you end up not being happy because you're kind of half in, half out. Mm-hmm. So so I, I feel that now I try as much as possible to compartmentalize my time and to sort of schedule my time so that I'm I'm doing my work and focusing on my work at the times when I'm not with my children and I'm not looking after my children. And then when I am with them, I just go all in and that's what I do. And I don't pick up my phone. I don't reply to emails. I I just think oh, I'll handle that when they've gone to sleep or I'll handle that when they're at school tomorrow. Um, and so far, that's working for me. The hardest bit is like I touched on at the start, you know, the hardest bit is when my work takes me abroad and I miss them so much. But, you know, they understand why I'm away. They're old enough to understand what I do. And that, you know, I'm trying to make them proud and, and do the best I can for them. So I hope that they they don't resent me for being away because they understand why I am and they know that I always come back. And soon maybe they'll be old enough to come and like start watching me in stuff. And then they'll really understand what what I do and why I'm away. And it's all for them, you know, they are they are the inspiration behind everything I do and I make all my decisions about work based on like juggling it with what's more important here and what is the most important thing because in an ideal world I would see my kids every day and I would you know work around the corner and life would be great but but the reality is that the security I want for them, the financial stability I want for them, in order to achieve that, I have to travel mm-hmm. and I have to go and take the work in other places because we are treated differently overseas to how we are in the UK, uh, especially financially, because it's so competitive in the UK. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are thousands of people who are very talented and can all do the same things very well so if you don't want to do it there is someone else that will do it for that salary whereas in another country if they want a west end cast they will make a big deal out of that and they will look after you in a way that's you know so so you can you can go away for two or three months and earn what you would earn in six or seven months here basically and that's why I travel for work and as, as much as I miss my kids I am doing it for them and I'm sure there are many, many other parents 
who can relate to that not just in theater but in you know in any profession you know you've got to do you've got to do the time and work hard so that they can have the future that you want them to have yeah yeah absolutely um i do definitely see what you just told me because thinking back i was reaching out to you for this uh, hmm. interview a while ago yeah basically you told me which totally cool <laughs> um it was just like Let's talk about this later because I'm about to go to ho- on holiday with my kids. So that's what I have to focus on. Yeah, so just chill out for a second. <laughs> I know, but that's exactly it, you know, and that's that's a really good example because, you know, if I go back three or four years, there would have been a time in my in my life when I would have thought, oh, that'll be fine you know, I can just set the girls up with a, a Disney film or uh, some some arts and crafts or give them a bowl of popcorn and I can go on and do a Zoom for half an hour and that'll be fine. Um, but that was very naive of me. And I've done, I've made those mistakes enough to realise that that's, that's not cool for the kids, mm-hmm. but it's also not cool for me because I'm going to be on Zoom doing something like this but not really, not really in the zone or like rushing my answers because I'm aware of the kids and therefore it's not fair for the other person on the, on the call. And it's just, it's just a mess. And there are obviously emergency times in life where you have to do that. And, you know, if the, if, if the, the childcare falls through or you have to end up taking your kids to work, I mean, people do these things every day and sometimes they can be quite funny and, and really <laughs> great stories, but I just, yeah, I just feel like, I'm I'm quite a compartmentalized per, compartmentalizing person, uh, and and otherwise, what I tend to do is just sort of not really do anything properly if I try and do too many things at once. So that that is a really good example, and and now that's just second nature to me. Like if someone asks me to do something, and I know I've, I'm going to be with my kids, I will just say, absolutely, I'll do it, but let's do it, and then I'll give them some options, mm-hmm. um, and and. And it just works. I mean, at the moment it works. So I'm going to keep doing it <laughs> until yeah. there's a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you want to give all your attention to something rather than kind yes. of attention to two things. Exactly. exactly that right. totally works. Yeah. Last question. This podcast that I'm doing, Have a Like It's In, is about just the connections and conversations we can have as people that help us to get through the world that is, you know, dark and scary at times. (laughs) Um, So I'm wondering for you, who are those people and what are those things that are really helpful for you to like, remember that there's light and there's good yeah gosh what a great question I mean the obvious the obvious one um is my kids but I've I've spoken about them a lot already but I mean I (laughs) I I think I think that the simple the simple reason that that it's them is just 
the naivety of childhood like the ch children are so great because they are they are completely honest and they are completely direct with you there's no subtext they you know you 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 know what your children feel about something or what they need because they just vocalize it and wear it on their face very proudly whereas the adults in our lives are laced with with subtext and complication and all of our own neuroses and insecurities and we we're very bad all of us are very bad at communicating to an extent because we will we will say we're fine when we're not and we'll say that we're okay when we're not and we get upset about things that are trivial and we we're very like kind of mood dependent and inconsistent whereas children are just like straightforward and honest and inspirational so I think that when I spend time with my children in the same way that I switch off from work I also find that I tend to switch off from planet earth in general you know all the things that that frustrate me on a daily basis you know I don't normally like sort of talk about politics and stuff but but I I've been very open about the fact that you know things like Brexit and things like the way the covid pandemic was handled by the british government and the way the media treat people and racism and gender equality and just all all these main topics that get under our skin on a daily basis when i'm with my children they just vanish from my brain for a long period of time maybe that's also connected to what I was saying earlier about how when you become a parent there's just something inside you that switches and makes you feel like you you you've got this because this is kind of what your body's designed to do so it's that kind of you go into like a protector mode where you just focus on them not yourself and you see them and what they need and what's around them rather than the world around you so they are the number one way that I can switch off from the dark but I think also I'm quite a sucker for like nostalgia and reminiscing I find that when I'm when I'm in darker places and, and sadder places in life I I will quite often turn to music or films or tv shows or, or actually even going to places like going on, on trips or restaurants or day trips or whatever it might be. There are places that I liked as a child from when times were simpler and, and when I wasn't as aware of the darkness in the world and, and the, the difficult things in the world. So, you know, last week, as you alluded to earlier, I took my kids to Spain to go on on uh, a holiday and I've never been there with them before but the place we went to is where somewhere that I went as a kid quite a lot and it was just the most wholesome and lovely few days because not only was I with them but I was also revisiting my past and thinking about all the relatives and friends that I enjoyed time with there and that that's something that I have found really comforting as life has gone on 
and maybe it is a like a like you were saying earlier about full circles maybe it's a full circle thing to kind of when you reconnect with your past you're you're able to sort of take stock of how far you've come and how much has happened but it's just so nice to know that all those things and places still exist yeah i try i try really hard to always love what i do professionally as well because it's kind of my identity or at least part of my identity but i'm also i'm also kind of unable to listen to music and watch watch plays and musicals without having like a kind of professional ear on so i so so i if i go to the theater i will sit there and my my brain will absolutely whiz and i'll be thinking about the acting choices the creative choices the set the costumes the the sound that and then i'll be like thinking about ideas for things that i want to do in the future and and it, so so for me going to the theater isn't escapism it's just even a more intense connection with what i do for a living mm. so i know a lot for a lot of people going to see a show is escapism or putting an album on is escapism and to an extent i can do that but but there's a limit because i because i like i leave the theater and then i get home and then i like have all these ideas for songs i want to write and plays i want to write and it's sort of <laughs> it's inspiration but it's not escapism so yeah i think i think family and children and nostalgia and my friends my my oldest friends you know from from childhood the people that the people that i've known since before i became anything else the the consistent ones who've always been there regardless of what job i have or what i'm doing or or where i'm working you know it's it's kind of easy to forget that there are people out there who have been a part of your life since you were a kid and maybe we don't see those people as often as we should because we know they're always there. Those are all really good. And I'm yeah. glad that you have those people. <laughs> so while I've been preparing for this podcast, one of this one of your songs that I've really liked and has come to my mind a lot as perfect for what we're talking about is how to say goodbye. Yeah. From um your album sides because yeah. I know it's the backstory to it being very interesting. I think one that you wrote for something but never got to use. Yes. Is that um and also it's just a really pretty and human song, I think, that um is about a, a thing that a lot of us go through. So I was hoping that yeah do you want do you want me to tell you a little bit about about the song and the backstory sure of course yeah um yeah i mean basically what happened was about probably about eight or ten years ago a friend of mine and i were, were talking about uh writing the show together and the show i'm not i'm not going to say what the book is called just because one day um one day the rights might become available to do it mm. but basically basically there's there's a very beautiful book which has also been a film um 
about a very successful young journalist who, when he was at college in the States, had the most incredible uh, relationship with his professor, mm. who was like his number one mentor and um, and friend and guide. And they were very close. Um, but then he, after he graduates, he moves to the city and becomes a hotshot journalist and kind of loses his human connections and becomes work obsessed, money obsessed. He stops doing all his artistic hobbies. He quits playing the piano. He doesn't have time for his friends or his girlfriend. Uh, and he falls out of contact with this professor who, who was his like, his everything when they were at college. But then what happens is he finds out that the professor is diagnosed with ALS and he makes a commitment to go and visit him. And that visit becomes a weekly visit and he goes to see him every Tuesday until the day he eventually tragically passes. Yeah. So learn to say goodbye is when we, when we started the idea of writing this show we just decided initially to like make a synopsis of how we would do this the script and write four or five songs and then we would offer that to the people who own the rights of the book to see if they would be interested in us developing it further but basically what happened was we just couldn't ever get hold of these people. And they didn't respond to letters, they didn't respond to emails. And it might be because those people don't exist anymore or you know, whatever, but the address that was in the novel, it just got us nowhere. So we decided to stop developing it just in case we ended up wasting two years writing something and then we never got to show it to anyone. And we didn't want to get sued either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we thought we would just leave it. But then what I did was I just was like, well, I really like this song and the themes of it are very universal and relatable. So I just changed I just changed a few of the lyrics to make it not specific about one story and to just be about this very everyday thing, really, whereby we go through life with people around us who we take for granted and we don't really think about the idea of saying goodbye to them until we absolutely have to. And in many tragic cases, people don't get to say goodbye. And then they go through shock and grief and all these extremely human experiences. But actually, one of the most interesting things is this idea that when people we love are ill, we, we might be aware that we're seeing them or speaking to them for the final time. And then what do you what do you do in that situation? What do you say? How do you say it? Do you try and make them feel happy do you try and make light of it do you cry do you pour out all of your inner feelings and we all know the answer is that it's impossible to know uh, and that everyone will do it differently and that every relationship will handle it differently and so that's what the song's about really um and and structurally i just played with this idea that he has to I don't know if you notice it, but each time the chorus happens, it's a bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, like at first, it's just a half chorus, then it's a bit more, then it's then at the end, it's full chorus with 
middle eight and just this idea that that kind of thing's inevitably going to be a journey and the more you interact with that person I think the words would probably flow more easily towards the end but initially I think a lot of people would struggle so mm-hmm. that's kind of that's the story of the song and so do you want me to sing a little bit yes please okay what might be the words that capture how I feel another time let's put this off pretend it isn't real to deal with how we part to mend my breaking heart I'm overthinking everything I don't know where to start so now the end creeps nearer let's take some time today you talk and I will listen help me find the words to say let me take your lead help me try to break your fall explain to me make sense to me this heart is truth of all learn to say goodbye there we go that's really weird because i've not sung that for about six years and half and halfway through it i was like oh i wonder if i actually know what the next lyrics are but but Uh, but yeah still in there still in there uh yeah beautiful thank you oh thank you i'm glad you like the song yeah it's nice when you get to actually revisit the process behind something and think about why you wrote it and how it came to be because mm-hmm. obviously each song has a story like that they're just some of them are more interesting than others <laughs> some some are some are much shorter some it sometimes it's like oh i just had this idea and 20 minutes later that there was a song but it's cool to be able to to think about it again and look back yeah absolutely um well that is really the end of what I had. So that's that's this, been this really has fun. Been just an absolute dream, and thank you for being here. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I look forward to to hearing it and and supporting what other episodes you do going forward. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me this time on How the Light Gets In. Until next time, please take care of yourselves, and if you can, take care of each other.